Hi, welcome to Over the Page, the Vale of Glamorgan podcast. And if you don't know where the Vale of Glamorgan is, it's the nice bit between Cardiff and Bridget. And I'm joined today by, as ever, Ben. Hello. And local author and all things YOLO, uh, Maganog expert, uh, Gareth Thomas. Hi, Gareth. Hi there. Thanks for joining us today. Okay, Mm -hmm. so you've written the book, I YOLO. And in fact, you've written it twice because you wrote it in English and Welsh. Am I right? Um, the Welsh version is a translation oh, okay. uh, by an old friend of mine and by Alan Jones, uh, the, who was the editor on it. Um, I, I was involved because I'd been learning Welsh since I was about 50, mm-hmm. which is a little while ago. <laughs> uh, and, uh, you know, my Welsh was good enough, not good enough to do the translation myself, but it was good enough to be a pain in the neck to anyone actually trying to do the work themselves. Excellent. So I'm well involved. (laughs) So um, for those people who don't know who Yola Maganog is, I briefly looked him up on... um, (laughs) Well, I briefly looked him up on Wikipedia. um, Always a good starting place. Yeah, it's not great. (laughs) Well, Not that entry. I use it all the time, but... (laughs) You go on, read it, read it. So, Wikipedia, according to Wikipedia, Yola Morganog was a Welsh antiquarian, poet, and collector of ill repute. Well, yeah, yeah, he had a bad reputation, I suppose. Uh, So, he was seen as an expert collector of medieval Welsh literature, but it emerged after his death that he had forged several manuscripts. And they say charlatan. He was a charlatan. That's so, right. Um, oh, how, how much would you love to be called a charlatan? <laughs> Are you going to redeem Yolo's good name? or? OK, I made a little list just before I came. This is the only note I made. Um, you know, why should one be interested in Yolo? Um, his skills were as a stonemason, a dancer, a poet, a lover... The composer of 3,000 separate hymns, uh, a botanist, an antiquarian who rescued several major works, especially around Glamorgan, like the Sanson Stone in San Ilfid. When you say he was a herbalist, a collector of folk songs that are many of the folk songs that are everyday and current uh, as part of the Welsh tradition, like... uh, now that wouldn't exist if Yolo hadn't collected it um, and also, one has to be said, invented a whole wonderful story to go with it. <laughs> That's, uh, um, the, yeah. the suggestion there that he, I mean, as an antiquarian, uh, he was way ahead of his time. You're talking about a time when the great libraries of the old houses were basically falling down. Mm-hmm. and their owners were not caring for them. Uh, at a time before books, when the libraries were basically handwritten manuscripts, so many of the greatest works of Welsh literature were actually getting destroyed by dust or eaten by mice. Yolo, as a mason, of course, went around from great house to great house, and where he was allowed to, he went into the library and copied the manuscripts. And that's why we owe him a huge debt for many of the manuscripts that survive. That is true. I mean, we do... Can I carry on with my list? Of course. Yes. Um, A lexicographer, 
uh, many of the words of modern Welsh are actually coined by Yolo. Now that's not forging. That is coining. <laughs> well, no, it's a, it's an important. It is, yeah, Distinction. Yeah, yeah. You're talking about a period at the end of the 18th century, with an explosion of new ideas, uh, which the Welsh language did not support, uh, and he worked with the extremely respectable um, uh, uh, Rev Reverend Walters uh, to compose a major dictionary, which I have a copy of which contains many words coined by John Walters and by Yolo, which are now current words in the Welsh language. For example, the word for dinoliaeth, humanity, was made up by Yolo. Oh. Yeah? Now, yeah. in English, of course, all you have uh, is a false pronunciation of the French word, which you nicked. Yeah. <laughs> Um, in Welsh, created a thing. Um, in Welsh, you know, they, he coined a word for it, and there were many others. There's a huge list of words which are in everyday use today, uh, which we owe to Yolo, a deck which is often just forgotten. Now, that's not forgery, that's coining. It's quite different. And it happens, of course, every day in the language in English now. New words get created, a whole series of them that didn't exist before Covid took over. Mm -hmm. Well, yes, yes. Yeah? yeah? He was a campaigner, the principal slavery, anti-slavery campaigner in Wales, who devoted his life uh, to a crusade against slavery. He opened the first free trade shop uh, in Britain, um, in this town, it in, was. Cowbridge. in Cowbridge. Yeah, um, Cowbridge. You know, he was a campaigner for the rights of man, uh, a friend of people like Tom Paine, of Coleridge, um, of Southey. Uh, the figure of the ancient bard in William Blake's poem is almost certainly based upon uh, Yolo Morganuk, who, he, who, who is part of the literary circle of London uh, in the early 19th century. But more than all of these things, what he did was actually to create a national mythology for Wales, which actually stood uh, against all of the anti-English propaganda and language oppression uh, of the 19th century. Um, he created a wonderful body, the first national organization, the first national or body in Wales since the time of Oinglindur, the Godseth of Bards, um, which actually drew people and the Eisteddfod from all different parts of Wales and represented certain values that were basic. Um, they, it had a mythology to it, which gave the Welsh pride in who they were, but it also embodied um, pacifism, international brotherhood, um, a belief fundamentally in the rights of man and above anything else, the equality of, of human beings. And that was a time of great British patriotism, flag-waving, Union Jack-booting, um, when, uh, um, when it was very bold to actually enshrine those kind of values. What you have when you look at the Godseth ceremony 
which most people look at and they say, well, that's pretty. Mm. Um, like the costumes, you know. What's that meant to do with the sword? Well, the sword was highly symbolic. It was about protecting people against violence. Is there peace? What he was doing was enshrining the values uh, of the French Revolution, if you like, the values of the Enlightenment uh, within the biggest cultural, the only cultural institution in Wales, an institution which became, in effect, the breeding ground for other national institutions. When you go to the Estevod, even now, you've got all of these meetings going on where people are saying, well, what we ought to have is, well, there should be a society for. The society's tents are the busiest tents in the place, not the pavilion. Um, and it was in places like that that the movements to form a university uh, started, the National Library started. Um, it was the spawning ground, mm -hmm. uh, both for a belief in Wales as a nation uh, and also for the national institutions uh, that would preserve its past and support its future development as a culture. And that's that's a that now how did you describe him? Well <laughs> however, however a fraud? Uh, well, I said a charlatan. Charlatan? Charlatan. Can I say a charlatan or a fraudster to me is somebody who does it with malicious intent and or for personal profit. Personal yeah, yeah. Now, and now I you, don't... I, you can absolve him from both of those. Do Not you... totally from the malicious intent. When he was when he was younger in the in the Bear Hotel here, he was quite famous for if anyone upset him composing ribald ballads uh, to satirise them. Some, well, some of those are quite maybe fun, some of it. But was... he would not regard those as the core of his work. What about to further his personal um, reputation? Yeah, as a as a as a as a man of literature. Do you think? Why, if you wanted to do that? I mean, that, Chatterton did it. Why? Well, we'll come to Chatterton later <laughs> on. That's something else. Um, uh, he was greatly. He was aware of Chatterton. There's yes. a parallel there, there is, which, uh, is, which is an hour's worth by itself. He was a know. man of his time. I mean, we can't take him out of context. No, we can't. We can't take but him out of why, context. But why, if he wanted to enhance his reputation, why bury or disguise some of your finest work, your finest work, under the name of somebody who died 300 years earlier? Well, yes, I mean, obviously, <laughs> yes and no, but, but in my... Read um, my book. I do try I have, and, I have, I have, I have. I do try and twice. explain the I psychology, uh, you know, twice. because he's a man of so many contradictions, and that's why... He is a man of huge contradictions, because, um, I mean, he has this massive list of achievements, as, you know, you've detailed, but there are contradictions. You know, for example, he he opened his, you know, fair trade shop and then pursued the will... Um, and contested the will because he was written out of the will of his brother and his father and they had um, their money was from slave trade so it was from sugar uh, not from his father no, no, no his brother the two, one of the, two, the two brothers there were two brothers uh, who emigrated to, to the West End yeah, yeah to Jamaica, Jamaica. Uh, and eventually became um, uh, slave owners uh, which uh, he resisted so sorry sorry I but didn't he contest? He he wanted. No, he it, refused to take the money that they left him. Oh, I thought. Oh, sorry, my mistake. No, then. the opposite. He refused. Eventually, very late on in his life, he accepted, 
but not for him. Um, and my theory is, I mean, his wife is another wonderful person, that there was, there was I... a lot of rowing going on here. What he did was to use the money to set up his daughters in a milliner's shop and his son uh, to open a, a school. Yes, yes. I mean, not for his personal. For, oh, okay. I was he died. Then, I he died in absolute poverty. Uh, in fact, he, I mean, he was he was only sustained uh, by the goodwill of some of the nobility locally, whose respect for him uh, had grown to the point where they gave him an annuity uh, and made sure because he, he became a great figure in his old age, uh, a sage that people visited because he was an expert on everything from... Uh, he, he was the first person to catalogue apples in Wales, you know. The, uh, I, I read that in your book, which was fascinating. I mean, I thought that was really... That's really good. Yeah, yeah, Hamnorchard. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, he, yeah. he understood everything about, about, about apples. Couldn't grow them, but, you know, he... Um, <laughs> he, he I mean, bless his heart, he was a bit of a... He had this catalogue of... of failure of businesses he, he of... is i was that, that that is the end of my list he was actually the world's worst businessman um when when he married peggy his wife poor peggy uh, poor peggy um I, i've written a play about peggy Have I, you? I, yes yes yeah <laughs> um, it, it's available for performance if you go you know, anywhere um the uh, you know peggy did come with a small dowry um, which he managed to waste in super fast time, um, not 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 wittering it away on parties or booze or anything, just investing it terribly, terribly badly, getting himself uh, deceived by others. He was he was terribly naive in so many ways. In your book, he comes across as incredibly naive. As, he as comes as a across as naive absolutely. if you read. If you read the academic books yeah. too, yeah. totally involved in a tunnel vision of what he's doing at whatever that time is, you know. Yeah. Uh, the and either thinking the best of people, or thinking the absolute worst of them. You know, there was there's nothing in between. Um, you know, you, somebody can be a friend of his for thirty years, and then for some reason they do something that really upsets him. Uh, and then he casts them out forever. You know, there's no hard no middle ground. No. Um, we did briefly. We touch... rambled. Sorry, we were no, no, on... no. We touched upon poor Peggy. Oh, businessman. Yeah, I was going yeah. to. I mean, he ended up. His his most spectacular venture was buying uh, a boat, um, the Lion, uh, uh, in order to trade across the Channel, which sunk <laughs> before it even left. The port. No, well, I'm afraid that port. is an embroidery in my book. I have oh, to okay, say, it okay. did, did actually manage to make a couple of crossings before it it sank, but it was a it was an old tub which really wasn't never going to go anywhere. Um, and uh, his debts mounted to the point where he ended up in in debtors' prison in Cardiff, uh, um, where he was sustained by Peggy. Poor again, poor Peggy walking from. St Hilary through to, to well from Fleming, Flemingston from Flemingston through to uh, Cardiff, which is a feral. I mean, Worse that, than that, miles? I mean, she was allowed Pregnant. to stay there overnight because it's a debtor's prison. You could do that if you paid the jailer, uh, and it was in Cardiff prison that Taliesin, his son, was conceived. <laughs> you know, he was there for a year, 
so Peggy gave birth while he was still in jail. Yeah. Very late on uh, in her pregnancy, she came to stay the night. Uh, the jailer took fright. He said, I, I don't want any... I'm having no one, no woman hatching in in this establishment. You know, this is, and he flung her out uh, in her stays. It is recorded. Not quite sure what that is, but near. Uh, um, so she was flung onto the street and had to walk home in the dark. You know, I mean, in the night. In the night, in a, you know, heavily pregnant on yeah. rubbish roads. Yeah. Poor, and, and poor Peggy continues to be poor Peggy because he goes off on, to seek his fortune in, in London um, after having been to Bristol and then goes to London and um, she's left uh, with the three children, isn't it, yes. back home. Well, four. No, four, one dies. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, um, and I would not have been best pleased with him as a, as a husband. Well, she uh, wasn't. No. Um, one of the things that's lovely about her is that the... Um, the letters that she wrote to him uh, in that time survive. Um, and you think, she's an interesting woman. You know, they... For one thing, he, he was in away in London many times. The first time here was when he was in his 20s, and she was in her 20s. And she plainly waited for him for some years. And you get the suggestion in a couple of places that uh, she had other offers. Yeah, you yeah. Know. <laughs> um, uh, and... It's plain from her letters, too, that, well, the very fact she's writing them, uh, you know, a tradesman's wife uh, in that period would be very unlikely to have been taught to read and write. Um, she she couldn't spell, but then neither can I. Um, I won't hold that against either <laughs> of you. <laughs> Thank you. Um, you know, and uh, she she wrote these wonderfully spirited letters to him, um, some of which really are very beautifully phrased uh, and on a couple of occasions she writes to him in verse um, castigating him mm. uh, for uh, neglecting them and neglecting his marriage vows uh, and, and these these beautifully amusing things where he she, she says things like um, uh, oh you know you are you're the worst husband ever on earth I, um, you know she castigates him heavily and then says yours most affectionately <laughs> I'm not but P. you are <laughs> yeah. yes. he probably had a really kind of it was probably like one of those relationships that were you know one of those marriages that were just very very really torrid but, but also Beatrice and Benedict yeah but also yeah, very yeah, affectionate yeah. And, and very yes. loving yeah well yes which is why there is a there is a uh, there is a memory from uh, Taliesin that he said in their old age. Cause, God, uh, I mean, they lived in this cottage in Flemingston, which was about the size of this office, you know, full of papers and manuscripts. Yeah. She was almost completely blind. Um, he couldn't, could scarcely move. Uh, he had to sleep on a special upright chair because he couldn't lie down because of his asthma. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, and the that it's a miracle they didn't set fire to the place, you know, because the candlelight and, and dusty manuscripts all all over the place. And they uh, and they, according to the they rowed like cat and dog, you know, mm. they they just fought all the time. Um, and and uh, when she died six months after he died, 
uh, and they're buried together under the floor of the church in Flemingston. You didn't know that, did you? I didn't know that. I no. didn't know that at all. I mean, these days they'd probably have been one of the great celebrity couples, wouldn't they? It'd have been like they'd have been like Burton and Taylor. <laughs> Possibly. No, I know, mean, he did put know, her in. There is a reason why they weren't, and there is a reason. You see, he he was a bit of a cele- he was a, he was quite he was a bit of a celebrity around the Vale, amongst poor people. Yeah, mm. uh, one of the things he became. Which is why I really object when people, you know, dismiss him as a charlatan or whatever. You know, he became a champion of poor people. He became a barrack room lawyer in his old age, trying to pick up the cases of people who he believed had been misused by the authorities, uh, refused help, most particularly by the parish law overseers. You know, uh, there was one. If I can go on a little tangent, you know, they, one of the um, to bring me back to celebrity um, <laughs> a little tangent there, there was one quite famous case in, in his letters comes out of um, Catherine Thomas or Catty Caerphilly as he refers to her who was born in, Flem- who was born in Caerphilly to parents from Flemingston who'd gone there to work in the wool trade mm-hmm. in Caerphilly but had died of cholera sign of the times um, you know, she was supposedly farmed out by the parish to care. In actual fact, she was sent uh, underneath the machines when she was small, yeah. clattering machines to collect the drop. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's how she spent her life uh, until she was too big to go under the machines when she was thrown out on the streets. Uh, she um, became a thief um, and a prostitute in order to sustain herself. She came back to Flemingston in the hope that uh, in the parish... For charity. uh, Yeah, for charity. She was refused on the grounds that she wasn't worth it, that she would almost certainly be hanged um, or murdered. So what was the point? Uh, Yolo managed to have her sent to an institute uh, for impoverished young women in London... Mm-hmm. Um, with the idea of giving her the skills, uh, at least to be to work uh, as a servant or to go into service somewhere, uh, or to learn to be something like a milliner. One of his other obsessions. Go back to celebrity. One of the reasons why I think he is defamed. If you look at the current Cowbridge Town Guide, um, he gets one mention, mm. and it's a subclause that says, according to Yolo. Quote, the infamous forger. Um, yeah. You know, that's it. One of the reasons why he doesn't, he didn't win applause in this town, um, and indeed across South Wales, was that he was attached to all of the wrong causes as far as the great and the powerful were concerned. Well, I'm glad you mentioned that because he, when he's trying to set up his, um, he had a lot of run-ins with the law. Basically, he was fell foul of the law in Cowbridge because you weren't allowed meetings, were you, of a certain amount of people at that time because of the Napoleonic Wars. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, well, he ran into trouble well, the law for a on number of reasons. <laughs> yes, I mean, if you, want, if you want to explore that particular one, yes, I mean, there was, there were various laws, increasingly repressive laws, that were brought in by Pitt um, uh, during the Napoleonic Wars uh, to stop what he saw as conspiracy 
But it was an excuse for. It was, it was an excuse when they used it for his meetings. I mean, everyone knew that he wasn't oh, yeah. having. That's what know. he was doing in London. I mean, they remember the, the the first meeting of the God Said the Bards uh, was on Primrose Hill in London. Thinly disguised attempt to celebrate uh, the values of the French Revolution, or the values of equality, fraternity, uh, international brotherhood. Um, yeah, absolutely right. Guilty, miss. Uh, that's exactly what he was doing, and that is, and he he had those sewn into the fabric of the Godset the Bards, and they're still there, which is wonderful, I think. Um, that's why I do get angry sometimes whenever I watch the ceremony, and you think, oh, you know, because in the nineteen fifties, um, they they spoiled a lot of Yolo's um, ceremony. Uh, they adorned it with little girls in short skirts dancing flower dances and things. Mm. Yolo would have hated. Well, that's not part of it. That's not what it's about. Well, that's interesting because <laughs> I, I was going to ask actually what you thought that he would make of the of the Estevod that we have today. That you know the the kind of and the ceremony and and you know surrounding it that uh, that we know now. I I I I I, I think if I tried to speak on his behalf. <laughs> <laughs> you mean he's not visited you? <laughs> That's very he's a personality. I talk to him quite frequently. <laughs> uh, he could well be sitting around out there now. You know, I don't know. He's a presence. He's a presence. But but you know, what would he think of it? Um, it's so hard, isn't it? Because sometimes he gets adopted as a uh, a symbol of. Um, Welsh nationalism. Mm. Yeah. He was. He wasn't. He he wouldn't have understood it. Um, Welsh to him were the people, uh, the culture. He wanted respect for the places, for the culture. Glamorgan was probably more important to him than Wales, if you like. Yeah. Uh, yeah. The Eisteddfod was. Um, he would have seen it as fundamentally political. Uh, and will be horrified by the way uh, in which the political basis of the Godset has been trivialised and altered. Remember, you see, in, in, in his day, anybody could join the Godset. You know, all you had to do was believe in it, yeah. was sign up to the beliefs, yeah? Now, of course, it's not about equality, it's an honour system. It is. Yeah. Yeah. You get in, that, you it? get invited if you're very posh and very respectable and very accomplished in Wales. You know, <laughs> um, you know you'd have hated that. Mm. No, 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 no. The God said it's not about that. It's it's about it's about a country holding hands. Yeah. yeah. Oh, that's fascinating because I've never thought about it in that way. Really, I've, I've never thought, and I've never made that connection with, uh, you know, Yolo and the and the God said and that that. The, that that was the way that he thought about it. They were separate for a long time. Mm. Yeah. Uh, they were, and I won't get the date right, so I won't use it, but he <laughs> he connived uh, politically. Uh, he could be very clever. Uh, a meeting um, which unified the two in the Ivy Bush Hotel in Carmarthen. Yeah. Um, uh, and there is a stained glass window by John Petts there to commemorate the occasion. Didn't know that either, did you? I didn't know that no. either. I mean, he strikes me as, as somebody who, um, you know, I think he was possibly somebody who was 
he sounds like he could be quite eccentric. I think, but but I think like and that's probably an understatement. Understatement. But um, but like all real eccentrics, I think he was. It 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 also he also strikes me as somebody who was absolutely sincere about what he yeah. did. Yes, uh, he he was. Um, um, Geraint Phillips, uh, um, who is a an academic in Aberystwyth, has written a number of papers, actually doing a medical diagnosis of Yolo Morganhoek. Uh And he said the more he talked to um, medical people about Yolo, mm. the more the words bipolar screamed yeah. off the page. You know? Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and, you know, this is th- these massive swings of mood, these, the inability to to see grey sometimes, you know, everything mm. is, a, you're, you're either my closest friend in the world or you're my deepest betrayer, um, you know, nothing in between, all this kind of stuff. And yes, I mean, some of the eccentricity, the ability to, to switch manically from one kind of activity to another, uh, and also the, the characteristic of when he's on something, God help you, it's tunnel vision. Mm. Don't try and tap him on the shoulder and ask for a bit of help on the, on, you know, I mean, just... <laughs> yeah. yeah. And yet Yolo the Man was, uh, you touched on it right at the beginning, the stonemason. He was an incredibly talented stonemason. He was. Um, and, uh, and, uh, and, you know, not only as an, he was, it did actually turn out he was an artist, you know, when he went up to London um, and his skills were sort of yeah, more yeah. recognised, but he was a jobbing stonemason as yeah. well, you know? Yeah. Which, when you suffer badly from asthma as, as a young child, mm. is not the ideal occupation, really. Mm. Well, no. One of the reasons you tried to get out of it. But yes, I mean, the, the, there's some... The stonemason bit is... Um, I, uh, there are various... There's at least one academic. <laughs> um, you know, I mean, he's he actually delivers lectures just on the stonemasonry of Yolo Morgano. Um, I mean, when I went looking for it, I was a bit surprised, first of all, by the fact that... Not much of it seems to be in the same style, but of course that was part of the art of the stonemason. You were told, "I want something in this style," or "I want." And so he was a go, jobbing stonemason. Yeah. He wasn't an you, you know, go to the church in Saint Ilted in Sandwich. You know, there is this beautiful uh, grave plaque on the wall put there, which is all sort of, you know, a beautiful Grecian urn. Beautifully carved and polished and, and magnificent, mm-hmm. um, and then you can go to uh, the church in Saint Athen, and there is a piece of lettering inside the church by Yolo, uh, which is in a completely different style. Uh, and obviously, that which was requested is like yeah. actually handing out the pattern book and sort of saying, "What would you like out of this?" Well, of course, you know? yeah. of course, you know, you. The one I love. Commission. The one I love and really recommend if you get a chance to go and see it, but you'd have to work quite hard at the moment, uh, is the one that he did to his father-in-law. His father-in-law died just before he and Peggy were married, uh, and it was obviously a labour of love. Uh, or it was a labour to please Peggy, I don't know, you know. They, uh, but there is this beautiful, beautiful gravestone to him, which is carved in a style which I would say is Yolo's. It's far more rustic, a country uh-huh. style, with lots of ornament and decoration, and it's absolutely beautiful. Where's uh, it, that? It's in the... He's buried uh, in the floor of the bell tower uh, of... Um, St Mary Church 
okay. of a church in St Mary Church. Yes. Of St Mary Church Church. Um, um, and uh, unfortunately the tower is unsafe at the moment, so you're not allowed in there. Oh, okay. Right. Uh, but even if you were, <laughs> uh, the last time I was there, there were about a dozen old pews stacked on top of it, uh, which in one way is great because it means it's carefully preserved. <laughs> yes. Because <laughs> yeah. they're not it's there, not people will just keep walking yeah. over it. Mm. You know? mm. It really should be fenced off and protected. It's mm. beautiful. Absolutely beautiful. Put it on the list. Put it on the day trip list. Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I keep meaning to um I keep meaning to try and do a catalogue of where Yolo's carvings uh, are known. I mean there are some which are possibly by Yolo. I mean there's one in the church in Cowbridge which is almost certainly by Yolo. Uh that's the memorial plaque to John Walter's sons who were friends of his. He was very close to them, wasn't and, he? That's yeah. right. And they died when he was very young. Mm. And there is a, a tablet in there, which undoubtedly was... It's all in Latin, undoubtedly written by um, John Walters. But John Walters also taught uh, Yolo Latin and yes. Greek, so... Yeah. Coming out to a jumping on to script, and Yolo invented his own script, didn't he? His Druidic... Uh, uh, alphabet. Yeah, which Tolkien stole. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 But uh, yeah, yeah that's, yes. that's quite something, isn't it? Yes, that was that was partly. I think that was like putting well, one way of thinking about it. He was actually doing a little bit of correction to the mythology because he um, he didn't. He suddenly had the idea. He didn't like the idea that uh, the bardic tradition was entirely oral. Um, which it probably was, um, you know. The, yeah, yeah. As I say, when you say he invented something, no, he he embroidered. There was always a basis of truth. The, there was truth underlying all of these things, and part of it was the fact the fact that this the the bardic tradition was an oral tradition. Mm -hmm. That's the nature of Welsh poetry, yeah. uh, can even today, mm. is that actually, uh, and I'm no good at it. Uh, I'm a, a Welsh learner, you know. You cannot, you cannot do it on paper. You can only do it by ear, you know. Uh, it is the sound uh, that works. You know? And if you, and if you think of it as a technical exercise on paper and the meaning of the words, it, you've lost it. Yeah. You know, it's an oral tradition. You all felt this. This somehow needed to be made more respectable by giving it a, a written form. So he invented the runes. Yes, yeah. yes. Ah, oh, OK. And I should say, and even then, of course, he was using runes that he'd found in old stonework in Glamorgan. Uh, you know. I mean, they look, you know, look, they look, but that's why... Yeah, I mean, not so, that's say why it fooled people. I mean, he kind of did fool people with it, but that's why there was so much um, deliberation about it up until quite recently. I, I so object to this word fool. Um, you know, that's uh, why people believed it was genuine. Genuine. Yes. yes. Yeah. Oh yeah. yes. Um, Hoodwinked? No. Okay. No. <laughs> Look, let, let me put this into context for you. I mean the. What he the biggest thing he did, uh, I think I said this earlier, was to give Wales the confidence in its own language and culture 
to withstand the 19th century. Yeah. Mm. He was dead by 1847. Yes. In 1847, uh, if you've done your Welsh history, was the bed? Oh, it's... Brada Thodwright Laceon. The Treason of the Blue Books. Oh. Yeah? yeah. Uh, a, a, a report written by a series of non-Welsh-speaking English clergymen who condemned the Welsh language as fundamentally backwards, barbaric, barbaric, uh, and explaining the immoral practices of the women of Wales, mm. um, uh, and should be forthwith suppressed, suppressed. Yeah, in all that, schools. And yeah. that gave rise to the um, to the Welsh knot in, in schools yeah, and that and kind of thing. Of now Welsh that was eighteen forty forty seven. Eighteen forty eight. Yeah, was published by Taliesin, Yolo's Manuscripts, of which I have a copy. I was tempted to bring it in because it wouldn't work on a recording. Um, <laughs> you know, um, uh, and it was... Basically, he left out the politics uh, in, in Yolo's yeah. writings because the politics might get in the way and people might say, ah, oh, radical, get rid of him, you know. Uh, and it was full of the stories of Welsh heroes and Welsh mythology and Welsh language and the origins of the culture going back way beyond the Romans. Um, uh, and it was used. There were people like um, Thomas Edward Ellis, the politician, I have a quote by him where he said, Jolla's Manuscripts is just the most wonderful book to allow me to demonstrate to English friends the richness, the ancient nature, um, the pedigree uh, of the language and the culture. Uh, it is not a barbaric thing. Now, that, that, that became one of the chief armaments uh, of nonconformist ministers uh, in the 19th century, uh, fighting to preserve uh, their language, their culture, their religion. Oh, I didn't mention that too. No, we, I was going to take you back on that. <laughs> yeah, but the values, he saw the values of Christianity as fundamental. This is why it was such a, a clever concoction, you know. Uh, it mixed in the Druidism, which nobody really knew anything about, so he was quite happy mm. to invent that. Literary tradition. You know, which people did know about uh, and did exist, but they were quite uncertain where it fitted in, or was it just old and something that had happened, or was it something that could still live? Um, he fitted in modern values of humanity and respect for the individual, um, of freedoms, of democracy, of internationalism, um, you know, and he fitted in the kind of things that all those ministers of religion thought were absolutely wonderful, you know, a purity of religious thought. Man from all seasons. Amazing. Uh, we haven't given his dates, because I, I mean, I know we just touched on that just now. Um, and, um, I mean, I don't think of him as a 19th century scholar at all, although he did, uh, I mean, he was old. Well, he he was, was old, obviously. But. He was, I mean, he was... Well, well, he was 1747 to yeah. 1826. Yeah, so he was and it's a real straddle across. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So well, I mean, he said that was one of the big. Sorry, Ben. Oh, no, I'm no. He, he, he always said, that, you know, one of the great joys of his life was, well, I get the quote right, the unparalleled eventfulism of this age. 
Mm. You know, I wish it was. And which it was. Yeah. As you say, he was turning into the modern world. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And that's why he was so important to us, to the Welsh, to have around at the moment, to do the reinventing, um, to make uh, old Wales, if you like, which was dying on its feet, mm-hmm. something that was fit for purpose in a modern age and which could be lived instead of just remembered. Well, I'm gonna I'm gonna put Yolo to one side, and I'm gonna t- talk about you. So, what spurred you? That wasn't your first book, was it? Yolo no, wasn't your first no. book. Um, A Welsh Dawn is the yeah, first book. Yeah. Um, so, what spurred you to write uh, the books in the first place? I've, I've always written. Um, I spent most of my professional life uh, writing for other people, uh, either uh, editing scripts or uh, writing reports, and uh, mm-hmm, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and eventually I got absolutely fed up of uh, actually quite tra- trying to make a good job of crafting you write reports they just finish up on a shelf you know they uh, you know, it's thankless if they read at all you know most people just read the conclusions this kind of thing so so I I decided to retire uh, when I got to 60 and start another career that was the idea yep moved down here um, didn't know very many people which is perfect so I actually had had an opportunity to write, you know. Uh, now I get interrupted, you know. The the, but um, the the first book, A Welsh Dawn, is something that I had been um, fermenting for um, some years, and mm-hmm. I'd, I'd written notes on and done some research on. And like most people, many people's not most, but like many people's first book, particularly when you are writing for yourself, which I was fundamentally. I was trying to explain my childhood. Yeah. Um, uh, and if you like, the, um, uh, Yola was not in my mind, but, you know, the 19... I was born in 1948 to be brought up uh, largely in North Wales in the 1950s uh, as the um, as the son of English-speaking parents in North Wales in um, and attending what was basically a monoglot school Mm-hmm. Uh, monoglot Welsh, that mm. is, um, you know, uh, it was quite a traumatic experience. Yeah. Um, uh, and I started just writing that story. Basically, the more I got into this, the more I also got into the politics of the period. And you realise, and it explains some of the things that were happening around me. I, I had a great time with that book. It started personally, it finished up as things, as I think in some ways books like that should. You know, they've got to work from the individual yeah. to the general. Then YOLO became an obsession. Uh, so I wrote YOLO. Uh-huh. Um, I've also written a book which I haven't got a publisher for. Um, it, it's actually based... It's a story of refugees. So that was my second book. I'm still working on that, and but I put that to one side for the moment because I've got another one uh, in Welsh... Which I'm, I'm, um, which you're writing in Welsh. I, I'm, I'm writing. I'm writing it in Welsh, um, uh, um, and I'm waiting. Yes, I'm not saying anything just in case it goes wrong, but that looks hopeful. <laughs> well, that sounds exciting. Okay. Well, um, I'm going to first of all, I will say thank you very much for joining us. It's been absolutely brilliant and fascinating. It's <laughs> always a pleasure. I can always talk. <laughs> <laughs>